Welcome to International Tax Bits. In this bonus episode, Harriet and I will be discussing three news stories of recent weeks. The advances in the OECD's digitisation of the global economy project, that's Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, the Pandora Papers, and the recent update to the EU blacklist and Hong Kong's inclusion on the grey list. As ever, I'm Graham Jackson, a tax partner at Hassan's international law firm, and I'll be talking to Harriet Brown, a barrister at Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So, Harriet, we're here for a bonus episode. We've never done a bonus episode before. No, I'm not, not quite sure what everyone did to deserve a bonus episode, but there we go, they're getting it anyway. Well, I think we can, I think we can blame the OECD, can't we, um, for, for doing things while we're on downtime. And the EU. And the EU. And the Institute for Investigative Journalists, or whatever they're called. Well, exactly. Independent Cooperative Investigative Journalists, whatever they're called. The ICIJ, let's go with that. Um, so they, they, they've released some documents. So in this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to, for our listeners, we're going to talk about the three big news stories that have occurred in the last couple of weeks, which are firstly the developments in the Globe, Pillar 1, Pillar 2, digitization of the economy uh, proposals from the OECD, otherwise known as the Global Minimum Tax Rate. And we're also going to talk about the EU blacklist changes. And finally, we're going to talk about the Pandora Papers from the ICIJ. So we're going to do them in that order. And if you want to deal with any, if you want to listen to any individual thing rather than the whole thing, then please don't don't worry about skipping forward, and then we'll see if that makes a difference on the audience retention graph. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, firstly, let's uh, let's talk about the OECD proposals, and I've got a quote here, haven't I, Harriet, which tells us what we what, what the OECD think these things have done. As we'll remember from our Global Minimum Tax Rate episode, they have agreed a Pillar 1 and a Pillar 2 uh, proposal. The Pillar 1 redefines um, the taxing allocation, taxing rights allocation, more in favour of the market jurisdiction. And Pillar 2, in their words, sets a global minimum tax rate to be paid by multinational enterprises. But don't get Graham started on whether or not it really is a global minimum tax rate or not. Well, maybe we'll get Graham started on that in a minute. <laughs> so, <coughs> pardon me. So let's just read out um, this quote, which is in the uh, FAQ section of the two pillar solution to address the tax challenges arising from the digitalization of the economy highlights paper, which the OECD has kindly produced for us. And the question is, will this be the end of profit shifting by MNEs via tax havens? That's the FAQ. So it says, well, first of all, it starts with a one word sentence, which is yes. And then it goes on to say, the work of the G20 and the OECD hosted Global Forum on Transparency and Exchange of Information for Tax Purposes has ended bank secrecy, including leading to the automatic exchange of bank information. And the OECD base erosion and profit shifting BEPS project requires companies to have a minimum level of substance to put an end to shell companies, along with important transparency rules so that tax administrations can apply their tax rules effectively. Pillar two, which 
is the global minimum tax rate uh, proposals. Pillar two will now ensure that those companies pay a minimum effective tax rate of 15% on their profits booked there, subject to carve-outs for real substantial activities. The cumulative impact of these initiatives means that tax havens, as people think of them, would no longer exist. Well, that's that then. Bye, Graham. <laughs> I don't live in a tax haven. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's that sorted. Um, you know, job done. I mean, oh, shall we say goodbye to everyone now? Yeah, well, that's that. We may as well just stop, mightn't we? Because um, just do what we say, and uh, tax havens will disappear. And I think, in my estimation, that is one of the most foolish statements that has ever come out of an international uh, organisation, possibly on a par with peace in our time, um, as a ridiculous <laughs> overreach of what you've achieved. <laughs> so, yes, and I think it's worth bearing in mind that effectively what, what, what Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, what Globe aims to do is to effectively prevent tax avoidance and actually to a lesser extent tax mitigation um, and if you look at how successful governments like the UK are at doing that which they've been trying to do for well oh easily a century and probably quite a bit more than that um, it, it, it isn't as simple as saying we've put this global provision in place it now works fantastic and, 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 all of, and all of the tax avoidance disappears and everything's fair and perfect. It's a lot more complicated than that. And that's when you're talking about a single jurisdiction, but when you're talking about trying to coordinate jurisdictions around the world um, to have a system whereby you eliminate this sort of arbitrage, um, it seems that, that seems like a very big statement. It does, doesn't it? Um, so I think that what we can do here is frankly, describe that statement as hubris. Um, I, I think it, it is beyond what they've achieved. And I think if we have a quick look, and I know we've got three things to cover, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. We have a quick look at some of the, the more obvious um, problems with the claim that, that they've resolved all, all, all things tax haven-y. Um, is that first of all, uh, the rule status on page eight of the, uh, the highlights document states that the global rules will have the status of a common approach. And that means that the uh, IF members, and that's all the countries that have signed up for it, are not required to adopt the rules. But if they choose to do so, they will implement them and administer the rules in a way that is consistent with the outcomes provided for under pillar two, including in light of modern rules and guidance. So you don't have to do it. But if you do do it, do it in a standard way. How is that even a global approach? I mean, I don't, I really don't follow it. Um, why so much fuss has been made by the media? Um, well, maybe I think it's probably because they want to have something to report. And the spin doctors have got, got hold of it and, and, and turned it round. I'm not in favour of this failing. What I'm in favour of is it being presented for what it is, which is a roadmap and a way forward um, and an, an, incomplete, um, an incomplete solution to the problem. To go back to the, the claim that tax havens as they think of them will cease to exist. 
I think what they're doing is the OECD have they, they defined tax havens, didn't they, in 1999? Yes, I think that's right. I think I think that's the right year. In that first report. Yes. Um, tax competition and growing problem, or whatever it was called. Yeah. Um, or international tax tax avoidance. Uh, and they've dealt with the definition that they set themselves <laughs> rather than the general sense that you can move things internationally and reduce your tax. Would you say that's correct? Um, yes, I mean, I think that must be the case, that that must be the case, um, that if, 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 they've, if they've achieved anything like what they say, or if they're in, in the process of achieving anything like what the OECD FAQs say they've achieved, then yes, it must be the former rather than the latter. Yeah. Um, and indeed the latter would be, well, let's see. Let, let's let's not us be hubristic as well and saying it will never happen. No, I, I think it will come in. I think these rules will come in as they will, as as they always do. I'm just not sure that it's that these rules, when you dig into the detail that we're not going to go into, into uh, too much today because we, we don't have a huge uh, amount of time to spend on this. Uh, there are lots of exemptions and technical issues and it only applies to people over $750 million in turnover. The tax base is defined in a quite an odd way. It, it, so dividends are exempt from the tax base. It, it, it looks like there's lots of work for people to work out what it actually means. And big sweeping claims like, we've solved everything. Um, probably a bit overblown, but... There we are. This is what this is what um, people who present these things tend to claim, isn't it? So shall we go through, first of all, because we've got a very convenient list, haven't we? Shall we go through the differences between uh, what was agreed recently in the October statement and what was uh, presented in the July statement? Um, yes. So it's starting with pillar one. Uh, pillar one in July, we were told that it would impact 20 to 30 percent of residual profit. In October, we're told it's going to be 25 percent. So different, but not really. <laughs> yeah. So they've, 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 they've pinned that down. And that residual profit is that is the taxing right that's given to uh, the market jurisdiction. So everything over 10 percent in um, gross margin, gross margin is allocated, is taxable by the market jurisdiction so they can if you turn over um if so if your if your margin is 20 percent then they get 25 percent taxing rights on the excess of 10 percent so they will be able to tax not they don't get but they will be able to tax 2.5 percent of your of your 20 percent so that's the first difference which as we say is not really a difference no um, it's a clarification um, we've then got in relation to pillar one um, and tax certainty uh, consideration for elective um, binding dispute resolution. They were they were making consideration for that, and they've now said that there will be elective binding dispute resolution available for some developing countries and only for what they call amount A issues. Graham, do you want to tell us or remind us what an amount A is? Amount A is the um, the jurisdiction market jurisdiction charge. Yes. Amount B is, if you if you remember, is the uh, baseline marketing transfer pricing type charge. 
So uh, the third difference is the withdrawal of unilateral measures. Now, this is very nicely, um, very nicely worded, <laughs> which essentially means the banning of digital service taxes, which I noted during the Labour Party conference, the Labour Party were claiming uh, that they were going to increase digital service taxes to pay for things. Um, and yet I'm guessing at the same time welcoming this, which actually <laughs> makes it internationally illegal to have a digital service tax. So I guess... Um, not, not until the 31st of December 2023, Graham. So they, they, could, they could get in quickly, get a digital service tax in quickly and take it back out, I suppose. Yeah. So isn't that, isn't that when the UK is due its next general election, like basically at that time? Oh, you've got me there. I, can't I think it is, it. isn't it? It's four oh, years. Is it four years? And it was in December, wasn't it? 2019. So, yeah. Oh, yes, it was December, wasn't it? Yes, I remember it being cold. Now you say that. Because he, um, <laughs> he did his ludicrous Love Actually <laughs> skit for, uh, for his, um, his, part, his political party broadcast. Anyway, that's an aside. So, um, basically, they've... they've worked out the coordination, existing digital service taxes must be abolished by the 31st of December 2023, or when the multilateral convention, which is the, the overarching instrument, which is going to deliver the whole thing, um, comes into force. I think it's the earlier of those two dates. Yes, um, which is why I was going with 31st of December 2023, because I, I don't have a lot of faith in the multilateral convention in within two years, though I could be very wrong there. It depends, I suppose, how far we've got with it already. Yeah, I was watching um, I was watching a Deloitte webcast about this, a webinar, whatever the word is, and, uh, and, and they were basically saying all these dates are entirely political and it's just about making sure the public don't lose faith with the process. Uh, or one of the main reasons for it is. I, I don't think we'd go that far, would we, Graham? We can just leave Deloitte to say that. I, I, I wouldn't go. Well, I think I might go further. I think I might say the whole thing's just about making the, <laughs> believe that things are happening. So shall we look at the um, global minimum tax rate, Pillar 2? Yeah, let's do it. So what's changed there? So um, on the undertaxed payments rule, um, in July, we had the uh, encouraging statement methodology to be agreed. They now tell us that um, MNEs in, in, in the initial phase of international activity will be exempt from the UTPR for five years. Initial phase of international activity is going to mean a maximum of 50 million euros of tangible assets abroad and a maximum of five countries of operation. So we have actually got quite a lot more flesh on the bones there now. Yeah, that's quite, that's quite, I, I read that the other day and that's quite, um, I think that will be quite relieving for startups aggressively growing startups won't it yes absolutely interesting that it's tangible assets abroad yes so that's bricks yes. and mortar not ip yes yeah, so you could yes yeah, so i mean you could still i mean which is strange because ip is is actually an issue in this area i would say it's one of the larger tax tax avoidance issues i i, I guess ip is the biggest asset of something like uber or some other platform-based um, service provider so it's a bit odd um, and it's one of the things that gets put over put, gets put abroad. yeah exactly that, that that's what I meant when I said it would be one of the biggest issues in this area or I would have thought because that is something that it's easy well it's intangible so it's easy to hold it anywhere well relatively and as long as it's not hard to value you can move it around without a report so there you go 
Exactly. Um, anyway, so that's interesting. Uh, what's the next one, Harriet? So uh, we have the Pillar 2 exemption for distribution tax systems such as Estonia. Um, and what we had in July was that a minimum tax would be applied only if earnings are not distributed within three to four years. Um, we now have a minimum tax will be applied only if earnings are not distributed within four years. So again, it's a minor clarification on, okay. on that front. So a distribution tax system is basically where profits aren't taxed in the company, they are taxed on payment out of the company as dividends or distributions. Um, Jersey actually has that as well for most companies, uh, well, for, for most Jersey resident companies. So yes, so that there you're getting a minimum tax, you get a, you sort of get a four year period. Um, and again, to me, that looks like an area where one might be able to get a tax deferral. Yeah. So you, postpone uh, so, for four, you can basically postpone tax for four years. You can postpone tax for four years, which again leaves uh, a potential for still um, for, for tax avoidance, where one includes that to to, um, to 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 be a deferral rather than merely a complete avoidance, which of course now the UK definition does. Yeah. Um, so and it, and if the if the minimum tax is less than the rate that would be charged if distributed, then it's still it, you can continue to defer some of it even after four years. Yes, that must be right. Uh, well, we'll have to wait for the for, for the specific legislation, I guess, and in, in specific jurisdictions. But yes, you would have thought that would would follow as a follow practically or yeah. logically even. Okay, so the, the pillar two substance carve out. So originally that was defined as 5% for payroll and tangible assets with a five year phase in of seven and a half percent. So that is basically that you can be carved out of the application of pillar two if you meet the thresholds of 5% um, of your payroll and tangible assets are located in, in the jurisdiction with the less than 15% effective tax rate. Uh, and that's been clarified, I think, because of pressure from Hungary um, for five and change to 5% of payroll and tangible assets with a 10-year phase-in starting at 8% of tangible assets and 10% of payroll. So um, they basically pushed it off by five years uh, because the Hungarians were quite... They've got a tax rate, I think, of 9 or 9.5%. They were quite annoyed about the whole affair. Uh, from what I see, and uh, this was their big issue because what what it seems that their aim is to build substance rather than um, to be like the, the classic shell company, and they're worried that they're going to get dragged in, and in their minds they're not doing anything wrong because they're talking about people actually having office buildings and workers and and all those things. So the de minimis exemption um, was originally very helpfully just exemption to be specified. And what is it now? Uh, we've now got some figures. It's jurisdictions where MNEs have less than 10 million revenue, that's euros, and 1 million profits in euros are exempted. So does that mean you could have lots of low tax entities within your group all earning a million quid, a million euros? I, I I think it might do. Again, I would want to see specifically what they say, and presumably they will put in some sort of anti-avoidance provision to address that because it seems too obvious. But we'll have to wait and see. It, it is quite a low de minimis, though, really. Yeah, um, it might be. 
it might be it might be the smaller i think the smaller groups would probably they're not targeting the smaller groups really are they they're not after, no. um a company with 10 million i know 10 million is a lot of money but they're not after a group with 10 million euros worth of revenue they're after facebook and um other large internet based entities that are generating such huge amounts of money aren't they so it seems to be going untaxed in places and the final subject to tax rule which if you remember the subject to tax rule is one of the fallback positions it's a treaty-based rule and it switches um taxability from the recipient jurisdiction to the paying jurisdiction where there's a payment between related enterprises if the uh, recipient jurisdiction will not tax at um at a given rate of gross payments and that given rate in the original uh, release was seven and a half to nine percent and that's been set at nine percent so we've got quite a lot of clarification going on there haven't we uh, yes, though not not an awful, not an awful lot of development. Maybe the um, under tax payment rule. That's quite a lot more specific now, as is um, the uh, the exemption for um, the de minimis under pillar two. But other than that, it's not nothing. Well, no, nothing surprising. Full stop. I would say, and not an awful lot of development, except in those two areas. Yeah, I think there's also been movement towards accepting guilty as a as an equivalent isn't it which creates some difficulty because their rates are different there yeah it, guilty of the us digital service tax type regime yeah and i think it's um the fact it's calculated on a different basis and i think it's almost the price that the international community is having to pay is accepting the guilty regime from what i've seen of the guilty regime and i don't know by nowhere near an expert or even really fully understand it it almost seems like the us is setting itself up as the place that you would want to put your business yeah. <laughs> um, because you're probably going to have to pay tax under guilty anyway and um and the guilty rate is less than the global minimum it seems like a win-win for the us to be honest no <laughs> It's strange how that often happens in international tax, isn't it? Yeah, we refuse to play until you do what I say. And then, uh, oh, you've done what I say and I'm richer than I was before. Hurrah! <laughs> Shall we move on to the timetable now? Well, we need to talk about the Irish concession. Tell us about the Irish concession, Graham. So the, um, the Irish Taoiseach, and I will not attempt to pronounce um, his name in in a in the correct Celtic manner, but it's um, or Gaelic manner. It's um, Michael Martin, and he has managed to get the OECD to say explicitly that this minimum global tax rate does not apply to any entity which does not turn over seven hundred and fifty million dollars. So that means the Irish tax rate is. In fact, every tax rate less than 15% is not required to, is not obliged to change to 15% um, for your bog standard business. It doesn't apply to bog standard businesses. It doesn't apply to Mrs. Miggins pie shop on Main Street. And it does not apply to any entity that charges less than, um, turns over less than 750 million euros. So even though it's not actually a concession because that's what's in the design of the of the documents it is a massive 
change in emphasis of what they're saying because it's it's pointing to the reality of the of the proposal rather than the spun headline of we've agreed a global minimum tax rate and i know i keep saying it but it isn't a global minimum tax rate and you would get to it sooner or later and they've admitted it this topic without without graham having to tell us all it's not a global minimum tax rate in fact when i see articles on global minimum tax rate i send them to graham so that he can comment online <laughs> yeah she makes me very angry <laughs> So let's run through the headline then, the, the, the headline, the timetable. Okay, so pillar one. Apparently early in 2022, we are going to get the text of a multilateral convention and an explanatory statement for the implementation of amount A of pillar one. Well, uh, <laughs> okay. We are also in early 2022 going to get model rules for domestic legislation necessary for the implementation of pillar one. I can believe that. Yeah, um, and I'm sure they'll be as unhelpful as lots of the other model rules are. They're probably Mid halfway through it already. Yeah, mid-2022, there will be, and I quote, a high-level signing ceremony for the multilateral convention. There'll be I a party. Tax havens have been abolished. <laughs> and by the end of 2022, we should have, and this is really vague, the finalisation of work on amount B for Pillar 1. Yeah, the, the, the amount B is the um, is is the transfer pricing, uh, as we said earlier on, the transfer pricing um, distribution and marketing type charge, and it's yeah they can't agree on that. That's you know an entire industry is built around um, transfer pricing studies, and they're basically uh, it, it's not even clear whether they're going to give a range, a single figure. They've got a lot of work to do on that, and I think that's just being kicked off down the road. So pillar two, November 2021, next month, we are going to get model rules to define the scope and mechanics for the globe rules. Also next month, model treaty provisions to give effect to the subject to tax rule. Um, middle of next year, the MLI for implementation of the um, subject to tax rule relevant bilateral treaties. Oh, golly, that's going to be good. We've got an exciting six months coming up. Um, yep. At the end of 2022, we're going to have the implementation framework to facilitate coordinated implementation of the GLOBE rules, and then 2023, implementation of the two-pillar system. Yeah. What are let's we thinking? See. Let's, let's see. Let's see what happens. Do you believe it? Um, I think there, there are certainly a couple of potential stumbling blocks, the big one being um, amount B, I think. That could cause some issues yeah. with the timetable. Yeah. I think that I think the pillar two stuff's probably already drafted because they've pillar two yeah. has been pillar two has been more agreed for longer than pillar one, hasn't it? So yeah, it's less. Yeah, I think it's been less controversial throughout as well in terms of yeah. causing less less disagreement. Because it's just a CFC. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so. I should invite anybody listening to um to send any um any articles on pillar two to graham so he can then comment on those online but it's just please, a CFC. please don't do that <laughs> please <laughs> i have enough to do i don't need i don't need to be snowed under by well-meaning people sending me angry articles from india and thailand about a global minimum tax rate oh, no please do please do it'll amuse me immensely <laughs> right okay <laughs> and i'm getting trolled all over twitter twitter it'll be your fault it will. It will. 
Right. So we think that what they've they've fleshed out what the proposal means. It is, I think, as they flesh it out more and more, what will happen is it will become more and more apparent that it, it doesn't do what it says on the tin, but it's it, it's doing something really quite important. I mean, we must, for all I'm joking about, it's not a global minimum tax rate. Yeah, it's it is really really important these changes, and it will make a massive difference. Um, and it is a sea change as well in yeah. in so many ways, including to the uh, the approach to international taxation. Uh, I think that they say that. Um, Pillar two will raise $150 billion in, in, in tax revenues globally. Uh, pillar one will raise, on my basic calculations, assuming a 25% um, tax rate on average, uh, $31 billion. So $180 billion globally will be raised in tax revenue. So, I mean, that's not to be sniffed at. Um, though I have got a cold, so maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not COVID. I've had a test. And um, so it is a massive change, but we need more details. We think that the timetable is quite ambitious, right? I, I, I could see it slipping, put it that way. Okay, all right. Shall we talk about what the EU's been, been up to? <laughs> Let's do that. So we have um, a new EU, EU blacklist. So they update this quite regularly, don't they? It's every six months. I think it's is it February and October they do. So it's not every six months at all. That's <laughs> twice a year anyway. <laughs> Biannual. Biannual, yes. <laughs> okay, so um Harry laughing. <laughs> At the EU blacklist. I don't know. I can't um I can't imagine that many people would just laugh at the words of the EU blacklist, but Harriet is one of them. Right, so... I was laughing at me not being able to count six months, if I'm honest. So anyway, what's happened with the EU blacklist? Well, so as we've said, the so a little bit of history to the EU blacklist. I think this sort of dates back to... They started wittering on about it back in about 2013, maybe, maybe a bit earlier than that. Um, I think the first one was published uh, in or around 2017 and was apparently um, an article from KPMG tells me replete with errors, which is good. Um, and it, it effectively, it deals with countries that or jurisdictions that the EU feels um, are, are impacting the tax take of EU countries. And it is not, it doesn't, you can't, you, you can be a tax haven for want of a better word, within the EU and not be on the blacklist. But if you're outside of the EU, you need to watch your back because you could go on the blacklist. Um, and indeed... Yeah, so that's... So just uh, Sorry, uh, that, that's, that's actually quite important, isn't it? They don't use this measure against their own people. No, they don't. No. <laughs> OK. No. You know um, who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so it only, it only impacts... Um, yeah, it only it only impacts non or you can only go on the list if you're a non EU jurisdiction. So that's quite a lot of um, low tax jurisdictions, but not all of them by any means. And so we've had we've had an updated list from the EU. Um, Shall we just say that this is different from the FATF list that we talked about? Oh yes, that's a very good point. It is completely different from the FATF list, and it um, it, it it targets a different thing. Yeah. Um, so the FATF list sort of targets jurisdictions where there's sort of inadequate. Um, it, it can be things like inadequate AML, etc. 
um, inadequate legislation or processes to deal with that. This is completely different. This is tax focused um, and it, it is aimed at addressing what, what the EU describes as external challenges to EU countries' tax bases. Um, and no, the so, word external. <laughs> yes, quite. So it's, it's non-cooperative jurisdictions for tax purposes, effectively, and they describe it as a tool to tackle tax fraud or evasion, tax avoidance and money laundering. So you do have that overlap, but my, my understanding from looking at the list and from sort of reading around it is that really it just targets targets people who the eu think are nicking their money through having lower tax rates broadly speaking or so who's, who, on, who's on the list who is on the list now i'm gonna have to find the list again now shall i read it out oh yes please <laughs> american samoa fiji guam palau if that's how you pronounce that now my apologies to the people of palau if i said it wrong panama samoa trinidad and tobago USVI, which is the US Virgin Islands, and Vanuatu. So it's interesting, isn't it, that there are some American jurisdictions on there. Yes. And then when we go on to talk about Hong Kong and the Grey List, the difference in approach between those two big countries and the, and the way that they are they behave when um, the EU comes knocking. But, I mean, none of these countries, apart from Panama, I suppose, are very they're not really on my radar as low tax jurisdictions they're not mainstream i would say and they are the sort of jurisdictions that you might anticipate having less well just less of a say for example an aml regime now obviously they're not on the fact list but they are those sorts of jurisdictions where there may be a greater degree of secrecy yeah, um, it appears to be this from from looking through because they give an explanation for each jurisdiction, which I'm not going to read out. Um, and it seems to be if you're not if you're not at least largely compliant in the global forum um, exchange of information leave table, if you haven't if you don't do any exchange of information, uh, if you haven't signed up to the multilateral convention on administrative assistance, then these are good indicators that you're going to go on the list. Um, and I, 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 all of these governments need to employ people that know a lot, an awful lot about automatic exchange of information to tell them how to do it. <laughs> do you know anyone who's written a book on that, Graham? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? I think, I think, maybe, did we not write a book about that? Uh, <laughs> available from Amazon and Spiramus.com. Um, so, um, yes. And I should just say there were some removals from the list as well. We should mention that. Okay. Um, which was Anguilla, Dominica and the Seychelles were removed this time around on the 5th of October this year. OK, so it, it is possible to move on and off, isn't it? I mean, that's another thing we need to say. Cayman were on last year, weren't they? And they came off. Yeah, they came off last October along with Oman. Um, Barbados came off earlier this year. Dominica only went on earlier this year and then came off. So obviously they dealt with it quite, quite rapidly. I mean, how effective is this as a sanction? I mean, I don't understand that the Barbadian, if that's the correct word, or the Cayman economy crashed within weeks of going on the on the EU blacklist. Um, no, and I think if, if you, but then if you look at it, Dominica went on in February of this year and came off in October of this year. So they obviously did something to sort of deal with that. So from that perspective, it looks effective. But as I understand it, um, being on the blacklist merely sort of means that certain European jurisdictions may charge higher withholding tax rates. And obviously reportability for payments. Yes, yeah. 
so if, it's if not that it's our favorite um yeah. so it's not it's not uh, i'm not sure i mean the eu actually certainly in relation to the gray list they say that's supposed to be encouragement rather than punishment so um i don't know if the blacklist and of course, we should say it's not officially called the blacklist. It is officially the EU list of non-cooperative jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever it's a blacklist. <laughs> yes, but if you just, well, actually, if you type in EU blacklist into Google, it's exactly how it. I found the list. I mean, yes, ago, you right? will find it. But um, it is technically a list of non-cooperative jurisdictions. So um, I, I, I don't know how effective it is. I mean, looking at Dominica jumping on it and jumping off it, they've obviously done something. So it's effective at changing behaviour, but but if jurisdictions just dig their heels in it doesn't actually do a lot and i think that's what what why i pointed out the number of us jurisdictions on the on the list they've been there for quite some time from what i think i think i remember um and they're clearly just not interested in what the eu have got to say it's not a big market for them um their big market would i would I guess would be facing the us um and so you know tough brussels i'm not going to change and i think that's why it's now important for us to talk about Hong Kong and their behaviour when they got put on the grey list. Yes. So, first of all, the um, Hong Kong have been added to the EU grey list. The EU grey list is, um, is, is effectively, it's called, it's Annex 2. Um, and so this is sort of jurisdictions that they've got their eye on and which they would like to encourage to improve their compliance and behaviour, etc. So it was added again on the same day on the 5th of October. And this was to do with its foreign source income exemption regime. Uh, and so it's annexed two to the list of non-cooperative jurisdictions for tax purposes. And what that means apparently is that the EU considers that aspects of Hong Kong's territorial tax system may facilitate tax avoidance or other tax practices regarded as harmful. That's a lawyer's sentence, isn't it? Um, it really is. And it so, also means that Hong Kong has agreed to make changes to the relevant legislation. So I think what it sounds like is that Hong Kong would have gone on the blacklist, but they've said, oh, no, no, we're going to sort it out. So they've just sort of been put on the on the on the, on the holding list. Yeah. So so I read a little bit about this and it, it was specifically the passive income regime. Um, and they do have a, the EU has an issue with territorial regimes uh, applicable to passive income. Um, and that was partly why there was so much pressure on Gibraltar in 2013 and, and Gibraltar complied and, and obviously we were an EU territory then. Uh, we complied with the Code of Conduct group and it was, it, it actually, we did something similar to what Hong Kong is now being asked to do. Um, so I, I, th I think it's, but I think it tells us something about the, the political relations between China and the EU compared to the US and the EU. And probably also something to do with the constitutional arrangements between the US and its overseas territories and China and Hong Kong. Um, in that maybe even the US would like the, the, the overseas territories to, to come off the list, but 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 respect the boundaries maybe a little bit more than uh, respect the boundaries and have different boundaries, um, <laughs> different boundaries. <laughs> between Hong Kong and, and uh, Beijing and Washington and, say, the USBI. Uh, so it, it's, I don't know any, anything about this, but it's just really interesting to me that the US territory seems to just basically stick two fingers up to the, to the EU and uh, Hong Kong's SAR, uh, China's SAR, um, when pressured, immediately says, OK, right, we'll change things. 
Um, it must be a matter of the amount of relevant business that they've got through going through them. That has, that has to be relevant as well, doesn't it? So I mean, I've, I think only once in my career have I ever seen a USVI company. I don't think I've seen one, actually. Um, it was uh, a long time ago as well. <laughs> so, yes, and we, we, so we should say that um, Annex 2, this grey list, is essentially a watch list. Um, and I think if Hong Kong don't change the system, which they've already committed to do um, back in September, if they don't change their system, then they will be put on the blacklist. I don't, I don't think it's remotely likely that they're going to end up on the blacklist. I would anticipate them coming off the grey list in February of next year. So um, who, who else is on the grey list? Are there any big countries on the grey list? Oh, I don't know at the moment. Have you got it there in front of you? I have. See, I oh. ask these questions and I answer them. So the big one is Turkey. Oh, yes. And there is a lot of um, there's a lot of additional information about what Turkey's doing and why it's taking Turkey so long to do it. Uh, Turkey, I think, has been on the grey list for quite a long time. And has 2018 managed, at least. Yeah, has managed to avoid being moved up to the blacklist but hasn't actually resolved the issues yet. So for jurisdictions that want to sort of string out the process, Turkey is, um, is, is, is the place to look. It's a model. So it's other, a model of how it's done. The others we've got are Botswana, Anguilla, Barbados, Dominica, Seychelles, Thailand. Costa Rica, Malaysia, Qatar, Uruguay, Jamaica, Jordan, North Macedonia, and oh, Qatar's on twice. Qatar goes on for harmful foreign source exemption regimes. I don't like the use of the word exemption. Uh, I think those, those regimes which, are, which have a, 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 an intellectual coherence and integrity, which are territorial... Aren't uh, exemption regimes. Not exemption regimes. The income is exempt but it, because it is not in the tax base, but it is not an exemption regime. It's just not fair to call it that. And the EU does this. It's... It, it, it uses language, which means that if you deviate from the European norm, you are somehow odd. And it, it's very Eurocentric. Well, you, you would expect it to be, wouldn't you? It's the EU. <laughs> <laughs> I was just sitting here wait, waiting for your brain to catch up with your mouth on that one. <laughs> in, the, in the wider sense, in the, uh, in, in, the, in the societal sense, it's very Eurocentric in that yeah. it assumes that the way that Luxembourg, France and Belgium does things is the way that everybody does. And if you deviate from that, you're somehow shifty. Um, but, you know, not isn't that a standard anymore. human approach to life? If you don't do things the way that I do them, there must be something wrong with you. No, I mean, that's it's your approach to life. <laughs> I think I start from the basic assumption that if it's the way I do it, everybody else should probably do it differently. Um, yeah, but anyway, I, think, other, I think all our listeners know that. <laughs> the other point to make here is, of course, um, if if sort of the requirements were applied, I think really strictly, you'd see a lot more developing nations on that list. Yeah. But I think there is some some degree of sort of latitude or understanding is probably a better expression in relation to what developing nations can and can and cannot achieve. Yeah. Um, particularly where there is no sort of financial centre. Or develop, highly developed tax office, civil service culture, yeah. um, technology, you know, I, I, they, they, they are, they, they do think about that and consider that when they, when they prepare these lists, don't they? Absolutely. I think that's, one of the reasons, one of the things, the inputs into the globe pillar one, pillar two things is, is how developed countries are going to cope with it. That's why they're pushing for these standard TP type 
bands, you know, you can charge this to this because they know there's going to be a clash between um, underdeveloped tax authorities and massive international businesses that are tech based. <laughs> and it's not, a, it, it, you know, it's, it doesn't really feel like it's a fair fight. So, no, no. Um, we, we can park the discussion about whether it's good for developed countries, but at least there, they are thinking of developing countries. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the Pandora Papers, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? And I think that um, we need to start our discussion with the Pandora Papers in the with the statement that we are not making any moral judgments about. No, we're just lawyers. We don't make moral judgments. No, not until we're judges. Um, <laughs> oh, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, my life. I don't think the world's ready for you or me to be a judge. Anyway, so we're not making any uh, any any judgments about who is right and who is wrong. We are not. We're not even going to make any judgment about whether the uh, the information was gathered in a legal way or not. That is not the point. The point is, there's been this massive data dump of millions and millions of um, files and pieces of information from around the world by the ICIJ. And, you know, it does, these things do have an effect. This is, this is the last, in, or the latest in a string of data dumps, isn't it? It started off with, was the Paradise Papers the first one? I thought it was Panama first, then Paradise. Panama first, then Paradise, now Pandora. Basically, alliteration is a key element in these in these data dumps, uh, it's, it's, it's clearly not, not important if it hasn't got two Ps in its name. And um, That's funny, because I would have argued the exact opposite, but perhaps we'll come on to that. But um, I think, and this is quite some time since this has happened, hasn't it? So um, I think that the thing that really struck me is it made much less of a splash. Than the did. earlier versions. It certainly seemed to have done. Um, and I think it made much less of a splash in the profession. Uh, that I would certainly agree with. So the immediate, I mean, so the, there was an immediate panic in almost every tax firm in the world when the uh, Panama Papers came out. Anybody who'd ever heard the word Mossack Fonseca immediately rushed out and checked all their files um, to see if they were in it. And and I don't think I've seen that this time. I don't think it's it's having the same impact. No, I, I don't think it is. And I think it's because while these things say, so I, I think really when you look back on the Panama Papers, which seemed like a huge thing at the time, I'm not really sure sort of professionally, politically or anything like that, it's had any real sort of far reaching impact, even, even politically. So I'm sure it's been it's been awful for certain advisors and for certain individuals or companies or whatever but actually in terms of changing how things are done and changing the trajectory of where things were going the OECD was always going where it was going and yeah. I don't think Panama Papers has speeded that up slowed it down changed the trajectory changed the direction or anything like that and so yes well I think there is a there remains sort of like an individual or a professional concern when these things happen the idea that they have a huge impact on how tax progresses is I think I think that's diminishing and I don't think it was that great to begin with I think it was maybe overestimated initially um, I'm sure governments like them when they're looking for bases to sort of 
um, change how things are taxed. And possibly we had in the UK, we had a lot of changes as to the non-DOM regime since the Panama Papers and whether or not it sort of opened the door for that to be easier. I don't know, as sort of from a public perspective, it makes yeah. it easy to point at these people who aren't really making a contribution, despite the fact they're immensely wealthy and probably are making a contribution um, in excess of that that the vast majority of us make. It, I think it sort of it may have it may have sort of made pushing at an already open door easier in that respect. But I'm not sure that really when you look at how legislation is, how global tax matters stand, that they have had a vast impact on that yeah so i think i i i read some of the um, the reports on the icij website and one of them makes the claim that it was due to the panama papers or uh, the, it was due to their activities with with their various data dumps that banking secrecy laws were undermined and um what you and i know as automatic exchange of information exists and it's just frankly not true. No, <laughs> the I mean, ICIJ did not initiate, or even I think really accelerate. They may have speeded it up by three months. Yeah, I mean that, that's the thing, isn't it? All of this was in the pipeline for many years before before these sort of. It was first released in 1927. <laughs> there you go, you see. <laughs> my date. I'm using my date again. Um, <laughs> It was first moved in 1927. They can't claim they can't claim responsibility for that. Um, but that's not to say it isn't useful in exposing other things. So, if there's real tax evasion going on, and they expose real tax evasion, then that's that's. I mean, that's always in the public interest. Of course, to, it is to, ex yeah. to expose illegality, and yeah. that is, that is correct. And a good journalist will expose illegality. I'm not sure it is in the public interest to expose the fact that a prime minister who left office a long time ago, years ago, bought <laughs> in, when, when he bought an office block, it was in an offshore wrapper and he bought that office block and the con they bought that offshore wrapper and the consequence and the consequences of that was that no stamp duty was payable. Um, because the way they pitched it, the Tony Blair thing, the way they pitched it was like he'd committed the avoidance, but the avoidance, if avoidance it truly was, was built into the structure of the ownership of that office block before he was even involved, because it was in an offshore wrapper. And indeed, that that was, I mean, the, the, that, that was a common thing to do at the time. And I, think he, I, I suppose that so he could is. have insisted on buying the property and not the company. Yeah, well, yes, possibly, yes, possibly, but you, you're not required to do something in the in in the manner that requires you to pay the most tax. You're allowed to pick a tax efficient way of doing something. That is not tax avoidance within the English law sort of meaning of it. And do we really think that Tony Blair personally selected that office block, reviewed the tax papers? I mean, I don't know what his, what his net worth is, but I'm guessing it's quite a lot, probably a lot more than it was when he was prime minister. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm damn sure he doesn't live in Sedgefield anymore. Um, he, I, it, he'll have people that do that. And their job is to act in the best interest of the client. It's not their job to maximise his tax position. No, um, I mean, that, that is, of course, all speculation. But yeah, yeah it's... 
it, it, it's neither here nor there. And one of the things that I find very frustrating about these data dumps is you get enough information to maybe know that less tax has been paid than might have been, but you don't really necessarily get enough information to know why or the basis for that. And as we know, tax avoidance, whether you're talking about it in a domestic sense or whether you're talking about, say, an international sort of meaning like the, the way that the CJEU would look at it, it's a really complex sort of definition. It's not a definition at all. It's built up from case law. Um, and it's not really a moral position either. When you look at look at the cases that actually deal with this, it isn't really a, a position on morality. It's a position on whether or not the legislation envisaged encompassing what you've done. So tax evasion is more straightforward in that respect. But tax avoidance, just to say somebody paid less tax, does not necessarily indicate less tax than they might otherwise have done, does not indicate necessarily that there's been avoidance. But it all gets jumped on and we make these huge moral judgments, which, as we've said, we don't. <laughs> yeah, so there are, there, and I don't want to leave any hostage to fortune, but there are two parallel conversations going on here, as, as far as I'm concerned. There is the campaigners and they are making a moral argument and they are perfectly entitled to make a moral argument that rich okay. people shouldn't be able to save tax by doing things that are, in inverted commas, tricksy, right? And a, a general sort of feeling that you shouldn't pay a reduced rate of tax because you are richer and you can pay a lawyer who knows more than Mrs. Smith's lawyer does and therefore you'll or you're moving in the kind of circles and doing the kinds of deals that generate enough money for structuring to be involved right and that's perfectly fine that is a perfectly permissible moral position to take but then to try and conflate illegality with that seems to be um it's a, it's blur it's blurring, blurring, a, blurring a line it's a, it's making a very blurry border between the two things um and you know there is some tax avoidance you look at some marketed avoidance that were being sold 15 years ago and you think yeah that is very close to the line and maybe the blurring there is fine but then you look at stuff which really is very plain vanilla which seems to get caught up in these as well and you think well that's just using the legislation for the purpose it was intended to be used for and you think well really that's that that's the difficulty i think and yeah let, let, i completely agree with you graham people are entitled to make moral judgments um about what rich people do with their money and how rich people get richer and i think you would have to be a very 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 good person to say no i've never made a moral judgment even inside my own head um but i don't think it's i don't think it's helpful to blur that line I think and that's what these things do. One of the other things that I've noticed is that the profession is pushing back on this even more publicly than it was with the earlier data dumps. And I think that is a function of the fact that the reporting is working. So the, the things that are being exposed now, there's the another, another problem with the data dump is it exposes stuff that happened 10 years ago as if it's happening today. <laughs> yes, yeah. The stuff that happens now... The stuff that I see being reported that happen, is happening now seems to be less aggressive than it was than it was 10 or 15 years ago. The reason it's less aggressive than it was 10 or 15 years ago is because of all the automatic exchange of information flows that are going on. No, even if even if you believe it's legal, you won't take an aggressive stance now like you would have done 20 years ago because 
there's a much greater risk that your home tax jurisdiction will find out about it and they will come and they will test whether it's legal. Yeah, so the sort of situation where you would have said, well, look, I think the better position is that, that, that say, for example, no tax is payable, but I think it's unlikely that the Revenue Authority are going to agree to that um, quickly. So it's one of those things where, well, I think we're right, we might well end up in litigation. And of course, you can't take a filing position on that because the information is going to make its way back. Exactly. So as the filter, as that has its effect, the profession is becoming more confident in the fact that this is that these are not overly aggressive schemes. And at my LinkedIn page, not I didn't, but my LinkedIn page was quite full of people saying, what why is everybody so why are they making such a fuss about this? very simple scheme that Tony Blair was involved in, that whatever was involved in. Now, obviously, we are not commenting on the emptying of countries' uh, treasuries into um, offshore structures. And, and it, almost always, there is a, a, the ability to do that on a, on a politically exposed person is, is driven by a failure within the country that they're in charge of. Because if you do make the report, the tax office aren't going to do anything about it. So they carry on doing it. Yeah. And that, but again, that, that, that is illegal rather than testing the boundaries of legislation. Again, I mean, there we're talking about evasion or, 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 or theft. fraud or theft. Yeah. And that's yeah. absolutely wrong. And professionals should not facilitate. Okay. So we got into some contentious territory there at the end, didn't we? <laughs> Did we almost have an opinion between us? I think we did. I think, oh, we I think, I think our conclusion on the Pandora Papers is there is a public uh, interest argument around it, at least some of it. But I think the approach of just dumping it all onto the internet is maybe not... Maybe <laughs> their, their moral position is, obviously, that you shouldn't be able to shift across jurisdictions. And that's OK. That's That's... That, I, I'm, I'm not arguing against that as a position. It's coherence, at least. Unlike the global minimum tax rate. <laughs> which is not like... going to please the ICIJ when they work out what it doesn't do. And that, that seems like a good place to leave it for this bonus episode. All right. Well, we talked for a lot longer than I thought we think we thought we were going to. And uh, Harriet, thank you very much for your time. Even though this has not really been about um, any concepts in international taxation, it's no substitute for proper advice in the relevant jurisdictions. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon.